1: Tonight on The Readout.
0: They said during the 2016 campaign that if he becomes president, there will never be a war within weeks. And we will have wars like you've never seen before. It will happen immediately. And yet, I've gone decades, decades without a war, the first president to do it for that long a period.
1: Decades? Well, he's running again, claiming that he kept the peace for decades during his four-year term as president. Well, the math ain't mathin', folks, and some Republicans say that they are done with Trump. But has the media learned anything about how to properly cover a Trump candidacy? Plus, it's official. Just moments ago, NBC News projected that Republicans will take control of the House with what will likely be a razor-thin margin. Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal will join me to discuss the implications. Also tonight, the Republican blame game. Even with a victory in the House, the leadership contest highlight the deep divisions within the party. When the truth is, I mean they're all kind of blame. They're all kind of to blame for enabling Trump's worst impulses. But we begin tonight with breaking news. As I just mentioned, NBC News projects that the Republicans will take control of the House of Representatives in January. The Republicans have now secured 218 seats, the exact number they need for control. The results come with major consequences as we wade through this political era of zero consequences. Kevin McCarthy is now a major step closer to his precious, the gavel, as he was just nominated on Tuesday by House Republicans to serve as Speaker of the House when the new session of Congress starts in January. But McCarthy, or my Kevin, as Donald Trump calls him, faces the daunting challenge of having to wrestle a far right wing within his own party, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, Matt Gates. Talk about a toxic work environment. And while Marge is backing Kevin, Gates has said that he won't vote for Kevin McCarthy in January, no matter what. It all boils down to the blame game, something McCarthy's Senate Senate counterpart is also entrenched in. Today, Mitch McConnell was comfortably reelected as the Republican Senate leader, even after the party failed to pick up seats in the chamber in the midterm elections. Now, there's a lot of finger-pointing over what went wrong, from Senator Rick Scott saying his party didn't stand for any ideas, even though, I mean, actually, Rick, you were abundantly clear that your plan is to slash Medicare and Social Security. You have a lot of Republicans, even once zealous Trump allies, blaming the dear leader, while others are rushing to his defense.
2: I think Senator McConnell's view is is that Trump is largely to blame and that Republicans have an image
3: problem because of Trump. I've decided I don't agree with that. Some of the senators and point the finger at, at Donald Trump, and I think that is convenient uh, for Senate Republicans to, to place the blame somewhere else. Um, my view is there's plenty of blame to go around.
1: Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell, who Trump blames for the party's election losses, says voters were too spooked by the party's messaging and overall bad vibes.
2: We underperformed among voters who did not like President Biden's performance in among independents and among moderate Republicans who looked at us and concluded too much chaos, too much negativity. And we turned off
0: a lot of these centrist voters, which is why I never predicted a red wave to begin with.
1: Okay. well, nice try, Mitch placing the blame on everyone but the man in the mirror, because the truth is, the person who is most to blame for history's promise of a red wave turning out to be a red puddle is actually Mitch McConnell, because no one did more to save and salvage Donald Trump at every rotten moment in his presidency lobbying his caucus to vote no on impeachment, refusing to investigate his flouting of the law, literally standing inert for four long years, and for one singular reason, the courts, to get Trump to sign off on the far right-wing judges that Mitch craved. No one did more to banish Roe v. Wade than the Republican Senate leader, who gloated over the fact that he blocked President Obama's Supreme Court pick, while practically galloping to stack the court with conservative judges under Trump, to secure that outcome. Mitch tolerated and accepted the chaos and the horrors of a Trump presidency. He enabled it all because the power to shape the courts was the only thing he cared about. And then he got it. And it was Mitch and Donald's court that banished Roe, which in turn cost Republicans the election. Like McCarthy, McConnell served as Trump's enabler. But both are unwilling to blame themselves for the red puddle. I mean, will they ever blame Trump, who is now a candidate in 2024? Well, I wouldn't hold my breath if I were you. Join me now is David Jolly, former Republican congressman from Florida, who is no longer affiliated with the party, and Sahil Kapoor, NBC News senior national political reporter and my colleague here uh, in the DC Bureau. It is so great to see you. I want I do want to start though with David. I want to play for you what Adam Kinzinger, who was on uh, Nicole's show uh, a couple of hours ago—and this is what he had to say about Kevin McCarthy, who is now the likely incoming Speaker of the House.
4: Before the election, I started to notice he was
0: defending Donald Trump more than he was defending his own members of Congress. But he is the guy. He is the entire reason Donald Trump is still a political figure. Because in the caucus, in the Republican caucus, after January 6th, there were some of us speaking
2: out. There was a lot of crickets, people trying to figure out where was this going to go. And the second Kevin McCarthy, in his cowardice, showed up to Mar-a-Lago, it changed the tenor in the caucus to, like, I guess we're doing this. Donald Trump's staying. Kevin McCarthy
0: is a coward? If he becomes speaker, it will be the worst time of his life, and history will not be kind to
1: him. You know, David, it is very difficult to listen to people blame Donald Trump when the people who had the power to do something about Donald Trump, (laughs) both before January 6th and after, did what you just heard Kinzinger say. Your thoughts.
5: Joy, can I say thank you, thank you, thank you. We, We are letting people get away with blaming Donald Trump for last Tuesday and the truth is exactly as you have presented which is he has been enabled and celebrated by a party but even more so than that I don't even like the term Trumpism because the truth is the proper word is today's Republican Party has embraced this hateful populism that was introduced by Donald Trump to the party, but it was embraced with welcome arms by the likes of Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, and and up uh, candidates up and down the Republican ticket. So, look, Donald Trump has reshaped the party in his image. He did things that violated the Constitution, and Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell and other weak need leaders let him get away with it. They all bear responsibility for last Tuesday. This is the most predictable stage, where now that it is convenient to cut Trump loose because he's a headwind, they're all ready to do it. But that speaks more to the character of McCarthy, McConnell and others than it does to anything related to Donald Trump himself.
1: Yeah. And so you talk to these guys on the Hill, right? And so when you when you're talking, they're giving all sorts of reasons why what happened happened. Let let me actually. Well, I won't even play it again. I mean, Mitch McConnell said, well, you know, people didn't like the vibe. Um, The only reason that Donald Trump lived to fight another day after he was impeached twice is Mitch McConnell literally lobbied to keep him in place to prevent him from being thrown out on his ear, which he could have been. He's still a political figure who matters because the Republican Party wanted him to keep mattering. So it's kind of hard to hear them say it. And then does anyone ever mention abortion When when you ask them what they think the reasons were? Because it seems like that's a big reason.
4: One senator did, Mitt Romney, who I asked just a couple of days ago earlier this week, told me that uh, abortion was a much bigger issue than Republicans had anticipated in the 2022 election. And he's right. Our exit polls show uh, that abortion was the second uh, most important issue to voters, just a few points behind inflation. Mm -hmm. And uh, those voters supported Democrats by a margin of 76 percent to 23 percent, which is quite extraordinary. Now, not a single Republican I've talked to has said it isn't worth it, because the old adage goes, what's the point of power if you're not going to use it? Mm -hmm. This is something they believed in strongly enough to want to use it. But beyond that, Joy, there's an enormous amount of chaos and finger-pointing within the party about what went wrong simply because people don't agree, Republicans don't agree about what went wrong. There is that, the, the core of this fight is between Rick Scott and Mitch McConnell. Uh, Scott, of course, challenged McConnell for leadership lost by a big margin. Scott's view is that Republicans did not do enough to inspire their base, to inspire conservative voters with a sufficiently aggressive vision. And that's why they lost McConnell's view as you just played there, is That's a bunch of nonsense. McConnell's view is they lost moderates, they lost independents, by being the party of chaos. He talked about how they frightened voters in the middle. That's quite strong language from Mitch McConnell. But even McConnell didn't blame Trump. Even McConnell didn't go as far as to say Trump is the the cause of that chaos. Some other Republican senators i talked to did kind of hint at that. They made clear that the former president's talk about election denial, his refusal to accept uh, his own defeat in the election kind of overshadowed the Republican message. And uh, there's plenty of data that shows that as well.
1: And, And even what you're saying, and thank you for that reporting, but, you know, David, it brings me right back to my original point. The thing that has inspired Republican voters—and you were a Republican politician for a time when you were still in the party—the thing that has motivated Republican-based voters for decades, since I was in high school, is abortion. It used to be that when you did a poll and somebody said abortion is important to me, 72 percent of them were anti-abortion, and they would actually vote for people they didn't even like that much because they thought that they could get Roe overturned. Here is Mitch McConnell bragging in 2019 about getting these judges on. Here's Mitch McConnell.
0: I was shocked that uh, former President Obama left so many vacancies and didn't try to fill those positions. I'll Senator- tell you why. I'll tell you why. I was in Is charge right. of, the, uh, of what we did the last two years of the Obama administration. I give, I, and uh, I will uh, give uh, you uh, full credit for that. Uh, and by the way, take a bow. All right, that was a good line. Uh, uh, uh.
1: And here are the justices, two of the ones that, uh, that Donald Trump signed off on, joking about taking away women's rights. It's
6: really nice.
3: I had the honor, this term, of writing, I think, the only Supreme Court decision in the history of that institution that has been lambasted by a whole string of foreign leaders <laughs> who felt perfectly fine commenting on American law. One of these was uh, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. But he paid the price. <laughs>
1: Jolly, as I talk to even religious uh, voters, particularly women, but even men uh, in this cycle, you know what scared them in the suburbs, what freaked them out and what made them say, I'm going to vote for every single Democrat on this ticket? That the contempt of the Supreme Court to rip away half the population's rights over their own bodies, joke about it and think that it was fine, and then also threaten to pass a national abortion ban, which Lindsey Graham said he was going to do. The extremism on the abortion position in which women who had ectopic pregnancies were having to flee the states they were in. How do Republicans not see that that cost them the midterms? Because it is what cost them the midterms.
5: Yeah, Joy, you're you're exactly right. The anti-abortion plank within the Republican Party has been part and parcel of the party since it captured the evangelical movement in the 80s, right? It was a deliberate attempt by Republicans to to grow a partnership with the evangelical movement, and it was easy for Republicans to become hardened absolutists when there was never the opportunity to actually achieve that. And so they never really had to test that politically it was enough to keep their base but what happened coming out of dobbs is to your exact point i think even within the evangelical movement there were people there are people today who may never identify themselves as pro-choice for whatever reason it's just anathema to how they identify but they realized they were pro row all along and republicans missed that politically and it's become a disaster for them and I don't think they can get themselves out of this even going into twenty fifty they
1: can't even in Kentucky, in Mitch McConnell's own home state, a, a, a measure to protect abortion rights in Kentucky passed.
4: Republicans are the dog that caught the car on the issue of abortion rights. They had a really good thing going just from a political standpoint where they could stir up their base. They could rally Republicans and conservative voters every election on the promise of uh, banning or outlawing abortion without the threat of actually doing it. Roe was seen as safe. It was uh, protected. It was secure. They didn't really wake up or mobilize the majority of the country that supports Roe versus Wade until that Supreme Court that they built ended up overturning it. Now they're in that space where they can actually— actually deliver on the promise they've been campaigning on, and it turns out to be a much more complicated thing.
1: And they don't want to talk about it. The one thing they weren't running ads on was, hey, look, we got rid of Roe. They weren't running on that because then it was bad for they them. They were trying to neutralize they it. They were trying right. to neutralize it and say it was something else. So I, I want mm-hmm. to ask you about another thing, because we, we were talking—we'll you know, share what we talked about in the breaks a little bit. We were saying that there is this thing where politicians make a decision that something, as you just said earlier, is so important that you're willing to take a risk on it. Abortion was that for Republicans. They'll do anything to get rid of it. Um, And for for Democrats, it was Obamacare. They were like, we're going to lose this midterm. We're going to get wiped out. We're going to do it anyway. It's worth it to us. But they actually ran on it. So I think that's the difference. There's now another issue here, the idea of— the Respect for Marriage Act, of codifying same-sex marriage. Surprisingly enough, there appear to be 12 Republicans who are willing to do it. A lot of them are retiring. We'll put it up on the screen. A lot of them are leaving office. What's the word on the Hill as to why Republicans are willing to do this? Because there is a big religious freedom, sort of anti-this-idea vibe that they generally have.
4: Yeah, the vote was 62 to 37. It got 50 Democrats, 12 Republicans. It's on a glide path to passage. This bill, the Respect for Marriage Act, is likely to end up on President Biden's desk and becoming law by the end of this year. Why did they do it? Joy, the simple reason yeah. is that they see the politics. This issue, unlike the issue of abortion, which has been kind of flat, you know, there has been a majority of the country that has supported it for a long time, but the dial hasn't moved that much. Support for same-sex marriage and uh, for keeping it legal has shot up. It's yeah. skyrocketed, and they all see that it's moving in one direction. Many of the Republicans, Republicans, Republicans who voted no, I can guarantee you secretly were happy that it passed. They don't want to continue They didn't want to vote for it. They didn't want to vote for it because most of their base doesn't support it. But they also recognize that the general electorate uh, supports it. And they didn't want to get in the middle of that. They didn't want to
1: get in the middle. And a lot of them, again, are leaving. (laughs) And there's no political price for it. Uh, David Jolly, Sahil Kapoor, uh, thank you both very much. Coming up, Congressman Pramila Jayapal, chair of the Progressive Caucus, joins me next on The Road Ahead with Republicans controlling the House. The readout continues after this.
7: we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future.
1: The 2022 midterms were a huge success for progressive Democrats. Of the 18 candidates, the Progressive Caucus endorsed this cycle. 16 have won their races so far, including the first Gen Z Congress member, Maxwell Frost of Florida, former Austin City Council member, Greg, C- Greg Kassar, and a trio of state representatives, Delia Ramirez in Illinois, Jasmine Crockett in Texas, and Summer Lee, the first black woman elected to the House from Pennsylvania, making this upcoming Democratic caucus the most progressive that we have seen in decades. Okay, but there's one caveat. Republicans have officially taken control of the House. NBC News projects that they have reached that 218-seat threshold, with a couple of races still uncalled. But even if it comes down to a majority of just one Republican, it does still give people like Kevin McCarthy and Marjorie Greene leverage over legislation, investigations, and funding the government over the next two years. So what can this new, larger group of progressives accomplish? Well, joining me now is Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington, who is the chair of the House Progressive Caucus. We have a very adorable picture. I'm going to show it to you. Uh, this is Maxwell Frost's selfie that he took. There, there you guys are. You guys are looking great. You look very happy. Uh, but now that you know that you're looking at a Kevin McCarthy speakership, are you less happy? <laughs> Well, of course.
2: I mean, there's no question we yeah. would have been happiest if we could have held the House and yeah. done the rest of the agenda, which yeah. clearly the country responded to, Joy. I mean, when you look at the election results and here's the thing, if you promise a bunch of things and you put together a diverse coalition and then you deliver on things like climate change and student debt cancellation and the the American Rescue Plan, people get excited yeah. and they want to come out and vote for you. If you say we're going to codify abortion rights and voting rights. Um, so there's a lot of the agenda. Agenda that we still have to get done, um, but I will tell you that the power of the populist progressive movement across the country is clear. Yeah. It's clear with these candidates who are not just candidates that won in deep blue districts; mm-hmm. they are candidates who won in very competitive frontline districts, like in Pennsylvania, um, in Oregon. We got two progressives elected in frontline districts in Oregon, mm-hmm. um, and they it matches the populist ballot initiatives that won across the country, right? like legalizing marijuana, raising the minimum wage, capping uh, interest rates on medical debt. These are all things that want—expanding Medicaid Mm -hmm. um, in a state like South Dakota. So these are the things that won. And I think the lesson for us here is— We might have to be an opposition party in the House with Republican leadership, last line of defense. But we also have to be a proposition party. We have to show people what we stand for, give people hope that if we get into office, we will do what we did again in this last term pass more
1: stuff that lifts working people, poor people, people yeah. of color up. Well, see, here's the thing. So, so, I mean, I know student loan debt relief. I'll, I'll take that one for just a moment, because I yeah. know for a lot of people, not just young people, but folks who can't buy a yeah. house because they That's still right. have this. It was a big deal. The fear now is that the vengeful other side, that their goal will be to try to take away those things, to somehow uh, repeal that legislation, yeah. to go after that, because they're very much against it. They yeah. filed lawsuits about it. Is there, is there enough of a Democratic threshold and enough of a crossover sort of normy Republican threshold to hang on to the gains? Well, the
2: line of defense is going to be in the Senate and the White House, right? So, I mean, we may not be able to hold all the wins in the House. And in fact, what we might get in the House, I I hate this, but what we might get is a really sharp contrast. Republicans trying to strip Social Security and Medicare, right? Isn't it weird
1: that they think that's a winning idea that they're going to
2: make old people poor? (laughs) why do they think that, uh, you know, stripping a abortion rights is popular. Have they seen the Perfect polling fare. across the country? I mean, I don't know that this is all going to be logical. And they're going to have a very slim margin in the yeah. House, which means that... Um, somebody tried to compare the Freedom Caucus and the Progressive Caucus, and I said, I'm sorry, they're totally different. different. The Progressive Caucus is a caucus of yes. We know how to govern. We know how to push. We'll push, but we know how to govern. We know how to land the plane. We know how to get stuff done. We have real values that drive us. The Freedom Caucus is a caucus of no. They don't know how to govern. I don't know what they stand for, and they really want to blow things up, and so I think that's the fight you're going to see now between the Marjorie Taylor Greens and maybe some more, you know, moderate members." who might have won in blue districts, mm-hmm. they're going to have to run again in two years, yeah. and they're going to have to decide, do they want to be the party of Donald Trump and continue to do that, or do they actually want
1: to try and work with us to get some done? I think done? they stand for impeaching Hunter Biden, even though he's not president. But uh, let, let, let's go on to the lame duck. I have to talk lame yeah. duck. Sorry for, for my <laughs> audience. I got to do some nerdy <laughs> stuff here uh, with the Congresswoman. The lame duck then now becomes really important. Yes. Because it is the last chance, for those who are not familiar with the way kind of it works, is that you guys now have—the current caucus is still in place until the new Congress comes in in January. So there's a possibility that you guys can get some priorities done. What would be at the top of the list? Because we know that there's an issue with DACA. Yes. And there might be an opening. We're hearing some reporting that there might be an opening in the Senate to do something on DACA. Uh, Voting rights would be great, because obviously, clearly, we need some work on that. Um, And police reform, I know, was still left on the table. What do you think could, in theory, get done in the lame duck?
2: Well, immigration, DACA and farmworker modernization, Mm -hmm. I mean, those two populations are bipartisan. They both Got bipartisan votes, so the hope is that we can get to something that we can pass in this lame duck session with this Senate and this House. Um, we also do need to make sure to take some tools that they're going to use to hold us hostage off the table. Mm-hmm. So that's the debt ceiling. Yep. You know, oh, yeah, we got to take huge. the debt ceiling off the table so they yeah. don't try to strip abortion rights again and reproductive health care from us. Yeah. Uh, well, they've stripped abortion rights, but reproductive health care from us. Yeah. Um, and then
1: we're going to have to pass some appropriations bills because yeah. that's what funds the government, and mm-hmm. that needs to get done also. But let me give um, Speaker Pelosi her flowers. I mean, I think that history will look upon her as the greatest House speaker really in modern history um, since what Sam Rayburn. I mean, there isn't anyone who's been more accomplished. You know, people may, they can say whatever they want about it. This lady gets the job done. She does. Um, The the question I think that kind of hangs over is that she's done so much, does she drop the mic? Right. And does she say, you know what? I have done so much. I mean, between passing Obamacare, all of the things Biden has gotten through, she shepherded through, we talked about that very difficult infrastructure. Bill, yeah. She got that through. Do you expect her to remain? Uh, and obviously dealing with her husband and what yeah. the horrors that happened to him. God bless him. Um, what do you think? Do you think she stays in? I really
2: don't know. And I think she can probably do whatever she wants. She I think, you know, she is a phenomenal She can speaker. do it and do it in heels, by the way. She can. And I'll <laughs> tell you, I've, I've traveled with her. I've had the honor of going on delegations overseas. She is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that there's a hunger across the caucus to, you know, sort of bring more people in and things like that. But if she wants to be speaker, uh, I mean, majority leader, Minority yeah. leader is what it will be if we, now that we're in the minority. I'm still trying to get used to that, yeah. Joy. But, you know, I think that she will, um, she'll probably be able to do that. Yeah. So let's see what happens. They do not have an accomplished speaker the way we Clearly. had Speaker Pelosi. Oh, they we... have Kevin McCarthy, who is not going to be able to bring that caucus, yeah. in my view, together. They're going to fight with each other. It is going to be, instead of Dems in disarray, which always used <laughs> to be a problem yeah. when I, we were described that way, this is Republicans in ruin, Right. Like Indeed. they, they are going to be fighting with. Each other. I think no
1: matter what you know about, think about all these folks. It is very clear that they are replacing excellence with mediocrity. That's right, and, and that is exactly. just that, that is just happening on every level. That including is just including across the House caucus. A lot, a lot of women who work in yeah. the workplace have been that's right. This. No, so this, that's right. This lady getting replaced with somebody lesser. That's, uh, that's right. just it is what it is. Congresswoman right. from Jai Paul. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joy. Uh, up next, Florida man. Florida man makes an announcement. Story on page wait twenty six. Does the New York Post burying Trump's low energy speech? a radical shift in conservative media's take on Trump. We'll be right back. <laughs> The New York Post, the Rupert Murdoch-owned tabloid, buried the news at the bottom of its front cover. Florida Man makes announcement. See page 26. The Florida Man in question is the state's infamous retiree, the twice-impeached, disgraced former president, Donald Trump, who's also the subject of multiple criminal and civil investigations. Trump announced his third bid for the presidency in an hour-long, low-energy speech from his Mar-a-Lago resort. You did not see his speech live on this network last night, although others did carry some of it live before cutting away. Joining me now is Jay Rosen, associate professor of journalism at New York University, and Ben Collins, NBC News senior reporter. And, Jay, thank you for being here. I want to start with you. Give us a, 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 a grade um, on the way the media so far—I know it's only one day in—is handling it. These are some of the way the headlines read, um, the print headlines and some of the online headlines. Trump, who was president, fomented at insurrection, says he's running. Trump, who tried to overturn a legitimate election, files to run. Trump, whose lies about the 2020 election inspired an insurrection announces Trump ignoring the midterms verdict on him announces an unbeknownst unbe unbowed by midterm fiasco Trump fries for president again. I- do you think the media has l- is learning its lesson?
3: I think there certainly was some learning there. Um, they described his uh, achievements as almost entirely negative uh, achievements. Uh, they contained within their descriptions the warnings that I think have to be part of covering Donald Trump. Um, there wasn't a lot of live coverage of his speeches. There was fact checking after the fact. Um, so yeah, I think we could see signs of, of learning. After all, he hasn't really changed his game in five years. So you would think that there would be some, uh, some learning as well. And, and I think we did see some of that, yes.
1: I mean, but not everyone's learning, Ben, because we saw sort of the opposite happen on Facebook because we know part of the disinformation vortex that Trump created was on social media. A lot of it was on social media. And Facebook apparently has now decided they're not going to fact check him anymore. That sounds to me like they're going in the opposite direction.
8: Yeah, look, I mean, he's still on the platform. So there's that's a you know, it's a different situation than it was several years ago. But I do want to say, like the the far right media has sort of taken all of Trump's enemies and just transposed them uh, onto Ron DeSantis. They're just saying it's a different leader of the party, but all of their guys are the same thing. So, for example, on Breitbart, um, right now you'll see Mitch McConnell with two snowflakes on either side of his name, but you'll also see a poll that shows, an an internal poll that shows Ron DeSantis is up 18 in a hypothetical primary. Um, so nobody's really picking sides outside, outside of the Murdoch universe, but still the enemies and the talking points and the policies of Donald Trump remain in place. Uh, they want they just want a different figurehead for Trumpism.
1: And so what you're saying is you think in the social media sort of zeitgeist around MAGAism, they don't care. They, they aren't holding on to Trump because the love of Trump seemed to be worship like three minutes ago.
8: Yeah, I mean, look, I think they're open to a, a new guy under that banner, under the banner of Trumpism. Uh, there are obviously Trump diehards who specifically like the person and who specifically mm-hmm. like, I, I would say, the meanness, the cruelty is like is big for them. Um, you know, they they really like owning the libs. It's a big part of it, and there's nobody better in the world uh, in their eyes than Donald Trump. But uh, they are, you know, the door's open. I I, I don't say this lately. You know, the door is not really ajar with these people very frequently. They they yeah. are. They, they are funneled into the idea of Donald Trump generally. But now they, I think they're looking around and being like, is this a winning proposition? If we really have to win elections, this might require somebody else.
1: Well, actually, I mean, it's not that much of a shift. I want to play because the thing that those who were in Florida covering the 2018 election remember about Donald Trump is different about the way the media often, I mean, about Ron DeSantis is often different from the way the media describes Ron DeSantis, as if he is some sort of a moderate pivot. Here's Ron DeSantis back in 2018 and his opponent, Andrew Gillum, responding to him.
8: The last thing we need to do is to monkey this up by trying to embrace a socialist agenda with huge tax increases and bankrupting the state. That is not gonna work. That's not gonna be good for Florida.
3: My grandmother used to say a hit dog will holler. Uh, And it hollered uh, through this room. Mr. DeSantis has spoken. Uh, hey, first of all, he's got neo-Nazis helping him out in this state. Uh, he has spoken at racist conferences. He's accepted a contribution and would not return it from someone who referred to the former president of the United States as a Muslim N-I-G-G-E-R. Now, I'm not calling Mr. DeSantis a racist. I'm simply saying the racists believe he's a racist.
1: And this cycle in the reelect for Desantis, there were neo Nazis again marching with Desantis signs in Florida. Are we at risk of the media simply repeating the exact same sort of you know sort of favorable um, gauzy coverage of Desantis that they did with Trump? Well,
3: I think there's a fascination with a new politician who seems to have his fingers on the pulse of his constituency. And we're at risk of going through the savvy analysis of the effectiveness of uh, the Florida governor and uh, deconstructing how clever and how counterintuitive his appeal has been. I think there's a fascination with any uh, successful politician that kind of uh, puts journalists in in the role of theater critics or appreciators of professional technique. Uh, And I think that's where we're going to be with DeSantis without some sort of intervention, which is not on the cards.
1: And that's the thing. I think you could say the same thing about Youngkin, Ben. I mean, you've had the same sort of coverage of him as some sort of moderate when his primary policy is banning books by black people. I mean, the, the, the challenge I have is that the way that we're analyzing these folks, and I don't know if they appear this way online to their fans, but they are projecting the idea, the same white nationalism Trump does. And that's why people who like Trump like them.
8: Yeah, that's I mean, with with Yunkin, it was CRT nonstop. It was just constant this drumbeat of, you know, of. You know, something somebody must do something about the critical race theory in our schools. When you know people were probably angry about the fact the schools weren't open, and they just you know the the GOP took the wrong message from that very specific thing. In Junken is a Yunkin and DeSantis too. They're sort of blank slates. Um, they don't have this big, uh, constant you know social media post after social media post thing that Trump is doing where you know everything that's inside of that guy's head. You know his opinion about everything. People are allowed to project onto DeSantis and Youngkin what they want to project. Um, Early on, for the Trump people, for very pro-Trump people on on the Internet, Youngkin did not really appeal to them in any capacity because of that. They thought he was weak or something like that. DeSantis has been able to overcome that so far.
1: Well, he's not a blank slate to those who heard him essentially refer to his black opponent as a monkey. I heard that. He won a blank slate to me. Uh, Jay Rosen and Ben Collins, thank you both very much. And still ahead, the U.N. Human Rights Council calls it emergency session as Iran hounds out more death sentences for anti-government protesters. We're back after this. Today marks two months since the death of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Iranian woman who died in police custody after being arrested for allegedly breaking Iran's strict dress code. Her death ignited countrywide demonstrations against the repressive morality police and quickly evolved into nationwide calls to overthrow Iran's theocracy. Security forces have violently clamped down on protests. Human rights groups have accused those forces of using live ammunition and of beating people with batons. Today was the second day of a three-day general strike called by protesters, which left many businesses shuttered. Earlier this week, the Iranian news site for the country's judiciary announced that the court had issued its first death sentence for an anti-government protester, saying that the death sentences are preliminary and can be appealed. A separate branch of Iran's revolutionary court sentenced another five protesters to up to 10 years in prison for violating national security and disrupting public order. NBC News has not independently confirmed their claims, and the number of sentences handed down remains unclear because the true numbers have not been widely publicized. A pro-activist human rights agency estimates that 15,000 Iranians have been arrested and several hundred killed. Earlier this week, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was forced to delete a misleading tweet accusing Iran of imposing death sentences on all of those 15,000 protesters. The story had originally appeared in Newsweek, which claimed that the Iranian parliament had voted overwhelmingly in favor of the death penalty for protesters, and that is not the case as we know it. Joining me now is Bahara Banisad, founder of B. Bahar. Her uncle, Abu Hassan Banisad, was Iran's first elected president. And Nazanin Noor, Iranian-American actor and activist. Thank you both for being here. I do want to start here at the desk with you, Nazanin. Um, We're talking in the break about just how hard it is, I think, for Americans to conceptualize what it means for young people like we did in Black Lives Matter to march and to be shot in the progress of protesting, in the process of protesting.
9: Absolutely. And this is something that the Islamic Republic has employed over the last 43 years of its reign of theocracy. It's murdered its own citizens with impunity. And it is exactly as the two years ago that we were all out supporting Black Lives Matter. Imagine we were just out in the streets, for human rights, uh, protesting against police brutality and racism, being shot, and nobody doing anything about it, and having our parents, as the parents of these young Iranian youth, are forced to go on television and and lie about how their children died, and many parents are fighting back now and refusing to do that, and they're telling the truth, which is the Islamic Republic regime is killing our youth.
1: And why do you suppose it's been so sustained? This is you, you said earlier. You said to me earlier, it's longer than the Green Revolution, which was. A pretty significant protest.
9: Yeah, it's it's sustained because now we have uh, shop owners that are joining in. It's uh, people in all provinces of uh, Iran that are joining in. So it's a unified effort. And people have, you know, they're fed up. They have yes. nothing else to lose at this point. They want their freedom. They want to end to this theocracy, and they want an end to the Islamic Republic. Uh,
1: we have Iranian football legend Ali Dai who's one of the country's most recognizable sports figures. He told his 10 million Instagram followers he will not travel to Qatar for the 2022 FIFA World Cup in solidarity with those protesting in anti-government. Protests. Um, it, it's uh, Iranian celebrities are speaking out. Tarana, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, hopefully, Ali Dusti, mm-hmm. top Iranian actress. She's posed without her headscarf, which is a big, big deal uh, on Instagram. Um, it's a big deal. Uh, Bahari Bani your uncle, was the last elected president in Iran. And, you know, it, it, there is this temptation in the U.S. to think of Iran as always the way it is now and to not understand that this was a country with a democratic system, no different than what we're used to here, and that it was was destroyed, uh, and no small part due to some actions by this country here, <laughs> the United States and overthrowing that, that government. But talk about the possibilities of Iran, because it could be so different.
10: Yes, uh, Joy, thank you for having me and allowing us to amplify our voices and, and what's going on in Iran. Yes, you're absolutely right. Iran could be such a different country. I mean, the people of Iran are... Some of the most educated, some of the most accomplished individuals in the world, even with what they're what they're facing. You know, we have 60 percent of the education system in Iran is women, 70 percent of which is STEM. Um, The only medal that was ever given to a woman in mathematics, which is the highest level medal you can get in mathematics, was given to an Iranian woman. Um, the only Iranian who's ever won a Nobel Peace Prize was an Iranian woman. And this is with them facing the repression that they've been facing. Imagine wh- how far they could soar if they had just, just as much freedom as, as half of what that men have is what, what they've been allowed right now. The life of a woman is worth that of half of a man, and they've accomplished so much. Imagine if they were equal. Um, and what needs to happen in that country is we need to have separation of church and state. This we cannot have clergymen running the country. That's what is happening right now, and they're weaponizing religion as a form of control. We need to have a system of checks and balances, and have politicians running a country, not clergymen.
1: We're facing uh, some of that vibe here in our country as well, uh, as you all know, that this idea of religious people feeling entitled to to tell everyone else how to live and what to do. And I'll ask you both this question. I'll start with you, um, Nazani. Do you think that outside pressure impacts the regime in Iran? Does speaking out from here from change their behavior, in your view?
9: I do think that global pressure is absolutely necessary, and it does make an impact. And I think that it shows solidarity with the people of Iran, and it gives them the motivation to continue to go. Because I know that for many years, with all of these protests and uprisings, the Iranian people have felt like the West has not paid attention. There hasn't been a global outcry. Some people might think, well, that's just what goes on there, et cetera. And now they feel the people of the world are behind us, and we're going to continue to go until we fight for freedom. And it is very important that our elected officials take actions through the UN kicking the IRI off of the Commission on the Status of Women, a commission it has no business being on. So I, I do think it's very important and it's imperative.
1: And give us a word on what you would love to see us do, because we want to take action. We want to support the women of Iran. Ms. Banisad, what would you want us to do?
10: So we need to put sanctions on the individuals, not the country is sanctions, but that's suffrage of the people. The individuals that are in power need to have personal sanctions, because whether we know it or not, their money is in America, their kids are in America if they start to feel the pressure as individuals then they'll start to back down right yeah and that's the first thing that america needs to do secondly the world government as as a whole needs to start backing the people the people are fighting with their bodies they have no weapons they have nothing but their life to give if the u.n if the u.s and if the world would put pressure on the government they would at a certain point have nothing else and they would need to back down
1: do you think that the you know drive to sort of roll back sanctions at this point is helpful or harmful? Because it does seem like there is a sort of desire to normalize Iran on the world stage?
10: It needs to be strategic. So at a certain level, when it comes to allowing for technology sanctions to be, you know, lifted so that third parties can come in and give tech and, and give um Uh, A way for the people to communicate when the government is shutting down their Internet. Yes, it needs to be very strategic in the way that it's given so that it's helping the people, not harming the people. And yet the regime is still racking up money through oil, regardless of the sanctions, because, you know, they're in partnership with China and and some other
1: countries. So it needs to be very strategic
10: lifting of sanctions.
1: And thank God for social media, at least right now, because it's one of the areas where it's yeah. actually doing some good. Bahar Banisad and Nazanin Noor, thank you both very much for amplifying this very, very important story. Okay, we are learning more about that deadly explosion in Poland as Russia says, hey, don't blame us. We only started the war. Back in a sec. Officials said today that the blast that killed two people in Poland Tuesday was not a Russian attack, as some had feared, but most likely an accident caused by Ukraine's defense system responding to a Russian missile barrage. Russia's strikes yesterday in what officials described as the largest missile strike so far in the entire war sparked widespread blackouts throughout the country. While it likely wasn't a Russian, Russian missile that hit Poland, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin stressed that Russia ultimately bears responsibility for provoking this war. NBC's Molly Hunter has the latest from the Ukraine-Poland border.
6: Tonight, Ukrainian President Zelensky is not backing down. Last night, as the news was breaking, he took to Twitter before there was any investigation into the strike, as the international community was talking about it at a fever pitch. He took to Twitter and said that Russian missiles uh, struck Poland, that Russian missiles struck a NATO ally. Now, this morning, uh, starting very early in the morning here, local time, the Polish prime minister, the Polish president, then the NATO secretary general, and later this afternoon, the U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin all shared uh, their findings that they are in agreement that preliminary uh, information, the preliminary investigation on the ground suggests that it was a Ukrainian rocket. The Polish prime minister even put a name to it, that it was likely a Ukrainian rocket from an S-300 defense system uh, that was built in the former USSR. So all of this information is coming out from Ukraine's allies, from leaders that were very clear to say they supported Ukraine, they supported Ukraine's right to defense, and no one was blaming Ukraine. And yet, Tonight, we saw uh, President Zelensky uh, speaking to uh, Ukrainian television anchors on this telethon, saying that it definitely wasn't a Ukrainian missile. It definitely wasn't a Ukrainian missile strike. They requested access to the site. They wanted to be part of an investigation. And he implored the international community to hold off on any further conclusions until the investigation was complete. And that is pretty hard to swear at this hour with the overwhelming case Uh, that Zelensky's allies are making.
1: Thank you very much. And that is tonight's readout.